The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, shake those rocks out of your head and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 184 with guest John Rauschenberger, recorded live Thursday, July 6th, 2006. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter, and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who let me use my music for this week's ads, and my doctor says I can get by just fine with one kidney, Carl Franklin! Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. We're uh, coming to you... Somewhat live from New London, Connecticut, and Vancouver, British Columbia. I'm talking, of course, about Richard Campbell. Hi, Richard. Hey, man. How you doing? How you doing, you world traveler, you? I'm a little on the jet lag side. I got back from Karachi uh, only a couple of days ago, which is 22 hours of flying. Karachi would be Pakistan. That would be Pakistan. That's right. With 12-hour time difference between uh, Karachi and Vancouver. So serious jet lag. So believe it or not, they have a tech ed over there in the Middle East every every year? Yeah, they call it PDC, Pakistan Developers Conference. Okay, but it's essentially Microsoft tech ed, right? Yeah, very much so. And uh, myself and Steve Forte were the only folks from North America there. Most everyone else as a speaker comes from Europe or the Middle East. Uh, wow. We saw, you remember Chad Hauer? Yeah, I remember Works Chad. Microsoft now. Yeah, yep. from, the, uh, from the SDC, he was there, mm-hmm. and uh, along with Goxin Bakir. Goxin. And, uh, we saw Malik, but that was in Dubai. We didn't see him at the conference. Malik uh, used to be the regional director, and now he's uh, working for the man. Working, working for, for the man at Istanbul. In Istanbul. Yeah. And now I've got, uh, I'm leaving tomorrow for Japan, so no rest for the wicked. Now, what do you do in Japan? Holiday, because okay. I deserve it. So you're climbing Mount Fuji. Right? Yeah, with Steve again. With Steve Forte. Yeah. Well, you have to take some pictures and let us know how that works. Hey, we got some emails here, folks. Uh, a lot of emails this week. It's been a while since we've actually done a show like this. So the first one actually came to us from the land of Dracula, uh, Romania. <laughs> he makes a point of saying that. And uh, I don't know exactly if I'm saying your name correctly, but I'm sorry. I'm apologizing up front. Uh, this is from Bogdan Nedelku. I think I'm pretty close. Bogdan Nadelku. He says, hello to everybody. My name is Bogdan. I'm a fan from Bucharest, Romania, the Dracula country. I enjoy listening to your show, especially in my car, because I feel that I'm not wasting my time in traffic, as I usually spend one and a half hours traveling each day. About the show, what I like most is the funny way you're presenting each subject. Most of the time, I have to coordinate software developers and go to client meetings, create documents, etc. So I don't have time to stick with the technology and how it changes. Well, guys, you are my escape door. You made it possible for me to catch up with most of the changes going on lately. You are my personal research agent, pinpointing in the right direction. I listen to shows and suddenly ideas strike me about this and that functionality which could be used 
in this or that system. And uh, he goes on and on to basically say pretty much the same thing in a different way. And uh, I'm just tickled to death that uh, somebody in Romania is getting value out of .NET Rocks. You know, it never ceases to amaze me. That's pretty cool. So you got one too, huh? I got an interesting email from uh, Dave Fry out of Tracy, California. Dear Carl and Richard, I'm an IT professional and do a fair amount of .NET development. I've been listening to your show for about a year, and I found it to be informative and fun. Last week, I was totally jazzed to see you were doing a show on virtualization, but was then was totally bummed when there was absolutely zero mention of application virtualization. What's up with that? It seems to me that the ability to sandbox an application without the overhead of an entire virtual OS has huge potential. Hmm. And it seems that Microsoft's recent announcements of its intent to acquire Sophricity bears this out. There's also Alteris, which is doing a lot of work in this space as well, not to mention that they are giving away a free personal edition of their software virtual system for free. Again, I think that the new and emerging area of application virtualization has important implications for IT and developers alike, and I think your listeners would benefit from hearing you two banter a bit on this topic. I know I would. Thanks, and keep up the great work. And thanks a lot, Dave. I mean, obviously, we didn't mention application uh, virtualization because Microsoft really hasn't brought anything to the table on it yet, and uh, Brian hadn't been working with it either. The, uh, the idea, for those who don't know, is that rather than running an entire virtual machine for every application, you've got a layer sitting inside of one operating system instance that isolates each application on certain key points, areas like the file system, the registry, uh, the sort of interactive settings that are the things that would conflict uh, between two applications, that's what they isolate. They, they journal them out, and they keep them so they're not visible between the different applications. It's a cool idea. And, of course, the advantage is that it's faster, right? Mm. The problem when you get into you know true VPCs is that you're literally running a virtual implementation of the entire OS. And so that abstraction from the hardware... Yeah, there's got to be better virtualization with the OS, don't you think? Absolutely. And I mean, the nice thing about the VPC approach is that it's absolute. I mean, great isolation, ability to move from hardware to hardware easily. You know, those things are, are pretty serious. And I don't see that going away. Really, I think the point is that these two technologies have worked side by side, that you virtualize your machine for portability between machines and isolation, and then you virtualize with applications really so that you don't impact other applications. Imagine the power of using software virtualization just for installing and uninstalling stuff. Yeah, I mean, you that's know true. you've got a clean uninstall because you've got a detailed journal of everything that app changed. Yeah. Mm. Excellent. Well, Microsoft, get with it. Let's, let's, let's have some software for this. Well, they obviously bought the product. I bet we're going to see it in another year or so. Fabulous. We'll see what happens. All right, I got another one. This one's from Dave Notterer. And again, Dave, sorry if I'm not pronouncing your last name correctly, but uh, he the subject of this email is Inspired by Grid Computing. Carl and Richard, while listening to your show about grid computing during my run, yes, I'm another .NET Rocks runner, a new acronym came to mind. Redundant Array of Cheap CPUs. R-A-C-P-U, pronounced RACPU. <laughs> well, you get the idea of where I can go from here, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's nice to know that so many of our listeners are such serious people. That's right. <laughs> this is what they think about while we're doing the show. All right. All right, one more, and then let's get going here. Okay. Uh, hey, Carl and Richard, I love your show, and let's do it every week. I really enjoy the presentations around CLSA.net and TDD. I guess he's talking about Rocky. Yeah. I would really like to hear some more discussions around design with C-Sharp and .NET 2.0. With that said, I think you guys should try to have Jimmy Nielsen on to discuss some ideas about his latest book, Applying Domain-Driven Design and Patterns. For me, this book was a real eye-opener. I know knew several to of the topics from Mountain Farler's Patterns of Enterprise Application Architecture and various other books, but Nielsen and his contributing authors do an excellent job of putting some of these pieces together for C-sharp.net developers. I know I would enjoy the show, and I'm pretty sure a lot of others would as well. Interesting idea for a show. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to approach Jimmy on this. It's just, you know, uh, there's always a battle here, isn't there, in, in deciding on shows. Usually we sort of tend towards the coder and want to talk about how to build this, how to work with that technology and so mm -hmm. forth. Mm -hmm. This is a little more the architecture kind of up in the air. What's the best pattern? 
approach to these ideas. What do you think? Well, I'll tell you what I think. I think that uh, this, you know, patterns and teaching patterns lends itself nicely to DNR TV. And it just so happens that Jean-Paul Boudou from ThoughtWorks uh, is going to be doing a whole series of DNR TV shows on patterns. And so if you feel like, you know, you don't have enough patterns uh, under your belt and, and you don't recognize them uh, quickly enough or, or easily enough, this will be a good series of shows to watch. And, of course, what's cool about doing it on DNR TV is that they're very much on the applied side. Yeah. Here's an implementation of this particular pattern and so forth. So I think a very real world. Yeah, it's a lot easier to see a software pattern than it is to describe, right. especially some of the more complex ones. Hey, before we get to the guest, uh, I want to. I have a brief announcement. You know, our friend Mark Dunn, who was, of course, the first co-host of .NET Rocks, and I made him a star. Anyway, he uh, is teaching BizTalk now. Uh, he's got a, a training room in Atlanta, and his first BizTalk hands-on class is sold out. Uh, it, it happened July. Totally sold it out. Had great reviews. Now he's got another one. It's a BizTalk 2006 five-day training class, boot camp style, August 28th through September 1st. Uh, he and Mark Berry are teaching it, and it's going to go from 8 a.m. till 6 p.m. every day. Class size is limited to 14 students, and you can check out more information about that at shrinkster.com slash GGW. This is a great opportunity to learn BizTalk 2006 right from the experts uh, you won't get a better uh, class experience, that's for sure. Limited to 14 students. Again, shrinkster.com slash GGW and tell them Carl sent you. All right, let's uh, get to the guest. Our friend John Rauschenberger uh, from Chicago is the regional director for Chicago. He's the CTO of Clarity Consulting, a Chicago-based software development firm and a Microsoft solution provider. John is a frequent conference speaker and author and as a member of Microsoft Strategic Design Review Committee, helps the Microsoft Visual Studio and platform groups formulate their product's future, in addition to many other talents. John, welcome to .NET Rocks. Hey, guys. Good to be here. Glad to have you. Now, the first thing, uh, the first thing I want to talk about is, is a callback to an earlier show that we did on the Indy 500 uh, race team software. Yeah. And this was a couple of years ago. Uh, but we interviewed the guys from that team, and uh, and 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 they brought you in. Were you one of the guys that worked on this uh, piece of software? I helped architect the original solution, but then we had some other guys from Clarity help uh, the indie folks actually implement it. And uh, just go back and listen to that show. But in a nutshell, what happened was uh, the Indy 500 people needed some software to use uh, to time uh, race the race the race cars. And uh, to work with, you know, to, to gather that data in pretty much real time by, I think, they, you stuck tags to the, to the bumpers of the cars and scanned them as they went past or something like that? Yeah, this was probably the coolest, uh, you know, software project I've ever worked on just from the, uh, you know, the cool technology and, uh, you know, sports aspect. But, yeah, the, the, uh, the racetrack in Indy actually has, I think it was 17 sensors buried in the pavement, you know, around yeah. the two-and-a-half-mile track. And then every car, they they put a little sensor right on the front wing, and they actually measure you know the time between it going from one sensor to the next. Uh, they actually factor in the the time it takes the light to travel over the fiber optic connector oh, wow. to uh, get incredibly precise measurements of the times even between those seventeen sensors. Um, so they can actually see you know how fast is the car going into turn one, through turn one, coming out of turn one. Wow! And we we. Built an app and helped them uh, take an old app and, and turn it into a VB.net app that allows each of the race teams with a, a laptop running a Wi-Fi connection to see that data in real time. So it streams in and they can see how the cars are doing as they tweak, you know, the suspension on the car and measure how those you know, changes are doing. That's incredible. We we uh, saw a video at Dev Days. I think it was 2004, right? Yep. Which I think was the last Dev Days that we did, if I'm, my memory serves me correctly. But yep. Um, and, and in the video, they showed the guys in the pit walking around with tablet PCs and, you know, using this application in the pit. Um, it was just awesome. Yeah. Next time I made a book there, they, uh, they didn't use Wi-Fi because there's so much RF, uh, you know, interference at the racetrack. They went with a proprietary wireless solution. So lots of interesting challenges actually deploying an app to the, uh, the pit crews, uh, in, on the race day. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff going on there to keep it running reliably. It was not easy. 
Yeah, I mean, you are talking about some pretty tough conditions for technology, but I got to imagine that these guys that are into racing are pretty into that sort of thing. Like they're they're hip to using computers and and interested in uh, ways to get more information faster. Well, it was interesting because it varied from team to team. Uh, you know, some of the teams, and I won't name names, but they they've used made very sophisticated use of the data you know so they wanted a way to you know quickly and reliably export it to excel and even establish dde links so they could real time pull that data into their own spreadsheets and analysis tools mm. Um, there were other teams that didn't use it as much, and yeah, you can probably guess the teams that, that use the data more were typically the ones finishing up front. And I'm not saying just because of the data, but uh, I think they they had a better idea of how to apply technology to something like you know making a car go fast, and it was working for them. Yeah, right. So, John, what are you working on and thinking about these days? Well, doing a bunch of things. Uh, you know, in my role at Clarity, I'm I'm kind of charged with thinking about technology and where should we invest in technologies to help our customers. And I'm also running a couple of our projects, so I actually get to apply the stuff that we're, we're thinking about and learning and seeing how it works in the real world. Mm. And the uh, probably the most interesting thing we just wrapped up is the project for Microsoft with the, uh, the interoperability layer between VB6 and VB.net that we've been working on with them for about the last two and a half months. Yeah, this is something that uh, that you don't hear about a lot and uh, that a lot of people desperately need to know how to do, and maybe not a lot of people, but there's a really good handful of people who are depending on this old legacy code, and the interop story between VB6 uh, has never particularly been good if you're start if you're in VB6 trying to access VB.net. Uh, yeah, framework. and that's, you know, that was really what drove this effort we did with Microsoft, was just looking at not only our customers, but all the companies out there that you know, are still running big chunks of their business on VB6 apps that work fine. You know, they're doing what they're supposed to do. They're enhancing them, fixing them. Um, but those apps are running their business, and it's, it is right. a challenge to move them over. And we wanted to see if we could come up with a way to help out with some of that migration. I'm curious as to, to how you did it. I remember trying to expose some things to VB6 through VBNet uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, using VB6 as the as the host. and Going the other way, it's pretty pretty simple. You've got a DLL, a, a COM DLL, an ActiveX DLL, and you get a, the IntelliSense and all that, and you have nice uh, nice features on the .NET side. But going back the other way, you don't have IntelliSense, and you know things like uh, the data. If you want to pass a data set to VB6, for example, oh my yep. God, that's a can of worms right there. Yeah, I found I found I had to make type libraries for all yep. of these. Uh, for all these assemblies in the .NET framework, and it just hit me all of a sudden. How come there isn't just a great big type library for, you know, for for the .NET framework for everything? Sure. So you know, the, the interop story has always been pretty interesting for Microsoft. There's there's been good points and there's been bad points, and you touched on a bunch of them. I mean, some of the interop stuff does just kind of work nicely. You, know, you slap a com interface on a nice simple VB.NET DLL. Yep. Reference it from VB6, and as long as you're not doing anything along the lines of passing data sets around, uh, it works fairly well. You know, right. It's pretty easy. There were a couple of places, though, where we just saw you know, our customers struggling, us struggling when we would try to work with it. You touched on one, so data sets and record sets, that interoperability is yeah. pretty much you know, non-existent, or you have to hand-code it. Um, the other big one, though, that we felt like was, was pretty broadly applicable uh, was how do I take a visual thing, let's just say, and not try to yet to tie it to a technology, but I would take a, a visual piece of functionality that I've written in VB6 or alternately that I've written in VB.net and, you know, make those two interop nicely to where I can have one application where one form is a VB6 form and the other form is a VB.net form. Yeah. You know, and let me as the developer pick and choose, you know, when, if I'm going to at all, when am I going to migrate a form over to VB.net or when am I going to write something new in VB.net? Yeah. Um, and if you've ever tried, you know, it was interesting. I spoke at TechEd and asked this question. How many people have run a forms-based VB6 app through the conversion wizard? Pretty much everybody in the room, about 150 people, raised their hand. And then I asked, well, how many of you were delighted with the results <laughs> you got? And, uh, one guy left his hand up. I don't know what kind of app he had, but he was happy with what he got left. The other, he probably uh, worked at Microsoft. It could be, yeah. <laughs> he did have a blue shirt on. Maybe he did. <laughs> But uh, now, no, I, I find it interesting that you're talking about forms, because when you first talk about 
companies still running their companies, uh, right? You know, they're still running their companies on VB6 code. I'm thinking ComDLLs that they're not ready to give up on yet. They're too complicated. They got too much code in them. Yeah. But you're actually talking about forms, some clients written in VB6. They're not ready to give up yet mm. either. Yeah. It, it is both. I mean, there certainly is a ton of code out there that's embedded in ComDLLs written in VB6 that people need to, to, to carry forward and continue using. When we looked at that, though, you know, with the exception of some data type problems, there are some workable solutions for that, right? I mean, I can reference so the, the interrupt story is not that bad. It's not that bad until you get to some of the data type problems, record sets and data sets being the biggest one, but there's a handful of others. But for the most part, if you wrote your ComDLL in VB6, .NET's going to be able to consume it fine. Yeah, if that's you not flip a, it around, an issue. If you flip it around, you write something in .NET, and you're exposing, you know, a system.point or some other data type that VB6 has no clue what to do with, then you can get into problems. But, yeah. you know, the other way around, we've, we've got plenty of customers that have built VB.NET or, or ASP.NET apps that use their old VB6 com DLLs without having to convert them over. Alternately, uh, when you talk about the code conversion story, it's not that, honestly, it's not that bad if you run a non-visual DLL through. Mm. Again, with the record set disclaimer. Right. If you got a com DLL that you built, you know, wrote in VB.NET that has no UI elements to it, you run that through the conversion tool, you're 95% of the way there. So long as you right. use the, the primitive data types. I mean, if you use yep. convertible data types, yep. blittable, I guess you call them, right? Yep. And that, yeah. you know, the, the data type restriction is always there. You know, there's some things I think Microsoft could do to make it easier, but at least you had a path, you had resources out there to say, you know, if you're using these data types, here are some things you can do. You know, there was some guidance. Yeah. Where we really saw a void was, I got a form that I wrote in VB.net. How the hell can I consume that or use that from my VB6 app? And really there, there was just a void of guidance. There was just kind of nothing. Hmm. So what we did, actually, we had a customer, and this was to us kind of the uh, the uh, exact example we were trying to hit with this effort. We had a customer who had a large VB6 app, about 100 forms or so. Built it up over about five years. Uh, I don't know the exact number of line count, but it was definitely in the tens of thousands of lines of code. Mm-hmm. Really heavy forms. You know, it was a, a stock real-time trading application. Got streaming market data in. You're buying and selling. You know that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to really build on this app. They wanted to start taking it out to their customers and selling it, but they weren't comfortable doing it in VB6 given the technology roadmap there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they also knew, and we helped them out. We took a look at, hey, what if we convert this thing to VB6? We actually went through the exercise. We ran the project through the conversion tool. To VBNet. To VBNet, sorry, yeah. yeah. Ran it through the conversion tool. Uh, we had about four or five developers spend three weeks just trying to get the VBNet solution to compile. Forget about wow, run. Right. We just wanted it to build. Yeah. We got it to build, and you'd bring up forms, and there'd be these goofy controls all over the place. Nothing yeah. looked quite right. And at that point, we realized this isn't going to work. So we took a look at, okay, what if we just manually convert the code? You know, We'll just go into VB.net, we'll create new forms, and we'll manually port that all over. And we came up with an estimate of about 18 calendar months for a team of about 10 people to get this wow. big application converted over. And I got to ask you, John, was this application a typical old school VB application where the, all the code was behind the buttons or was it well separated? I would call it a hybrid. I mean, there were non-visual business objects mm-hmm. that encapsulated most or at least a decent percentage of the you know, the business logic of placing an order or canceling an order, that sort of thing. But there certainly was a lot of what I think anybody would characterize as, as business rules and, and yeah. application logic you know, embedded in that form, um, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for bad reasons. But it was probably pretty close to the typical you know, VB6 good but not perfect app that was built by some okay. you know, good, solid VB6 They gave apps. it the old try, but sometimes uh, they didn't follow the rules. Plus, with an app of the, that kind of legs, you, you're betting it went through a lot of different hands of varying skill and yep. skills that evolved, and rarely, if ever, did the right. old code get cleaned up. Yeah. <laughs> that was half the fun, was reading through the code, and, and I've been working with this client for a long time, and just it was kind of like a walk down memory lane of all the developers <laughs> right. who we worked with over the years. And, uh, they'd all made their little contributions to the app, and they were still in there. So you've obviously got a, a process now for for dealing with this. Um I guess that's what you what we really want to hear. Yeah, so what we did in the, kind of the the project, the product we're helping Microsoft work on came out of this. And essentially what we wanted to do is we got 150 forms. We wanted to pick 25 of them and convert those over to VB.net and then release a new version of the application. Hmm. 
and then do another 25 and another 25. And the, the business was okay with an 18 to 24 month conversion process. They just weren't okay with getting nothing during that time. Right. So yeah, we needed to right. do releases in there. Right. What we came up with was an architecture where we, in .NET, VB.NET, we'd create forms. We'd, you know, create business objects where we needed to. We actually ran the old VB6 business objects through the code conversion tool and they mm-hmm. came through pretty clean. Mm-hmm. And we'd compile that into, you know, a managed DLL that we'd put a com interface on top of. And then we'd put a little bit of code in VB6 saying when the user clicks on, let's just say the new order button, we're going to make a method call on this com DLL in the VB6 world. It's going to pop up a form, which mm-hmm. happens to be a VB.NET form. And now in the VB6 process, you know, we're hosting the, the .NET framework in the common language runtime, and we're side-by-side showing one form as a VB6 form and one form as a VB.NET form. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what we were able to do using that architecture was take this application and over the span of about six releases, get the entire application ported over. It took us a little bit longer, so it took about two years instead of 18 months, but we did mm-hmm. six releases in there. Wow. And uh, in the end, we kind of felt like, you know, this feels like something that, isn't probably unique to this customer. Yeah. So we we took it to the VB team, and this is one of the things I love about the VB team. We say, hey, look, this is what we did. We got a good relationship with them. Um, is this something you think would be inter- you'd be interested in making easier to do so that other people could take it and apply it in their needs? And out of that came a, about a two-and-a-half-month project where we built a little toolkit. It's going to be available as a free download uh, sometime this summer. I don't have an exact date yet, but in the next, say, six to eight weeks, I would guess, that basically streamlines the process of creating a form in VB.net, clicking a button, building your solution, and now you've got a form that you can very easily pull into your VB6 application just by adding a reference to a COM object mm. and programming against what looks and feels just like a VB6 form. Mm. But under the covers, there's an interop layer that's you know Marsh are mapping those COM calls to the appropriate .NET objects and showing the right forms. And it even allows you to do things like raise events. So when a user clicks on a button in your VB.NET form, you can raise an event back over to VB6 and handle that event. Hmm. You can expose properties, methods. Um, We even went so far as to allow some concepts that don't apply to VB6, like overloaded constructors, to be authored in VB.NET. And then through our mapping layer, we turn that into initializers on the VB6 side. So you end up with an initialized method, which is kind of a... Pretty common VB6, you know, uh, structure if you want to initialize something. What I like about this is that it isn't like typical, uh, you know, uh, transitional kind of conversion wizards because the goal is not to have something that you're going to use forever. The goal is to have something that compiles, something that works, something that you will get you to the next release when maybe the code will be replaced by 100% managed. Yeah, and that actually was probably our number one design goal, was that the the people writing code in VB.net didn't know they were writing a form that was going to be hosted in VB6. So we didn't want you to be constrained in terms of how you were going to design your VB6 form because this interop thing was going to happen. Beautiful. You know, For that very reason, that when you're done with the interop, if you ever do finish, say two years from now, you don't have the interop anymore, we didn't want all of this interop goo you know, sprinkled throughout your code that as we talked about earlier, it would never right. get cleaned up in yeah. 10 years from now. People right. would be looking at it and saying, what the heck do we do that for? So we really try to keep a nice, clean separation. You write good .NET code, our little toolkit via Visual Studio add-in will generate the uh, the appropriate uh, COM interface code for you, and you don't have to worry about any of that. That's great. Very, very cool. Yeah, so you're, out well. you're looking at, uh, what, the end of the year before this comes out? Oh, no, no you said six to eight weeks. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be available um, as a free download from the MSDN site. And uh, the download includes the Visual Studio add-in. Uh, it includes a, a little helper class that uh, we use for some of the interop stuff. Uh, two sample applications, a Hello World-style app, and then a larger, sort of, here's a full-blown you know, line of business application using interop. And then a bunch of documentation. Um, and the other cool thing is, at least as of right now, the plan is to release, if you need it, the source code for all this stuff. So if you want to mm. go in and tweak it and change it around a little bit, that source code will be there. Our goal, though, is that no one needs to do that. Is you there a, a project name, like a nickname for the project? Yeah, it's currently referred to as the Interop Form Toolkit. Okay. Um, that's sort of a working name, so it may change, but it'll be something along those lines. And 
you know, we do want to focus one kind of other thought here is it is really just focused on solving one problem, which is how do I take a form written in VB.net and host it in a VB6 application as part of a migration path. There's nothing in the toolkit that helps you convert your non-visual DLLs. There's nothing that helps you with the record set data set and the data types, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we wanted to focus on let's solve one problem and solve it well and let you know other people and other groups worry about providing some guidance around the other pieces. So given that you have all this experience uh, doing this conversion, let me ask you, what was the, other than the interrupt stuff, what was the most challenging thing that you had to come up against when you did this conversion? Uh, you know, it, uh, it, the data type problem was a bit constraining, and that, that does kind of carry forward into the toolkit, that you do need to be conscious of what data types you can marshal across the interrupt boundaries and which mm-hmm. ones you can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other piece, and, and again, this is just kind of an inherent problem that there's some guidance to help you around, but it's not totally a solved problem, but the two different forms engines, so the VB6 Ruby forms engine and the VB.NET Win forms engine, mm. They do behave just a little bit differently. So, you know, for example, in some instances where VB6 fires like a mouse down event, VB.net fires, you know, a button clicked event. Mm. And if you're a developer who's going back and forth, uh, it's kind of like jumping back and forth between C Sharp and VB.net, for example, that, mm. that, you know, mental shift you have to jump through when you go from one to the other. Right. Uh, it's, it's a bit of a challenge. I'm going to ask you to hold that thought. While we just take a moment to remind the listeners that uh, .NET Rocks is supported by sponsors and advertisers. It's the only way that we can bring this show to you every week. And one of those advertisers is Data Dynamics. They make a product called ActiveReports.net and lots of other great products. Uh, Simple, effective, powerful reporting. Very easy. Drop the reports onto your forms and ship them with your product. And uh, they're online at www.datadynamics.com. about the uh, graphics stuff? I mean, I know there's some things that, you know, the VB6 applications relied heavily on the Windows API to do things that VB couldn't do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know that there are some some things that you can do in the API that you can't do in .NET. I think um, scrolling is one, like scroll DC is one. If I can remember create, correctly, find window, you know, the find mm-hmm. window API. Yeah. There's no equivalent in the .NET framework for that. Right. So did you ever you come across those things, too, where you had to just, it just totally threw a monkey wrench in the architecture and you had to redesign? <laughs> you know, actually, this was something I never thought I would do, but the find window is a good example where we needed to do that, when, at least when our app was in hybrid mode, mm. from VB.net. You know, we needed to find a window. And <laughs> uh, we didn't have a great answer for it. And in VB6, it was so easy. What we actually did was just create a VB6.com DLL. Yeah, calls the function, and then we call it from VB.net. Well, there so you actually, go. <laughs> you know, most of the time, our interop was going the other way, where we wanted to do something that was easier in VB.net. Yeah, you know, and and whether it was graphics or anything else, spawning threads or calling web services, any of that sort of thing. <laughs> but that one instance, we did go backwards the other way, um, and that's actually, you know, I I think Microsoft has changed their tone a little bit here. That's where I get excited about interop. It's like yeah. you know, pick the right tool for the job, build an right. application. Users don't care which right. language exactly. or technology you're using. Um, and if we could smooth out some of these interop road bumps, um, I think it would become a much uh, much more you know, thought through, I guess, or thought about architecture to say, let's create an app that's partially VB6, partially VB.net, you know, mm. partially C++ if we need to. That actually was part of our architecture. We had some things that were written in C++. And just pull it together. Use the right tool for the job. John, do you think Microsoft was more... Um uh, open to creating this tool because that the code that it generates, you know, they knew it wasn't going to be permanent code. I mean, do you think that there was more? They were more willing to go along with it. I'm obviously, if you came to them and say, said, "Hey, let's make your conversion wizard better," I'm not so sure that you'd get a positive response from that, right? No, and I think for good reason. You know, Microsoft is. Uh... It's not investing heavily in the concept of automated code conversion. Right. I think they feel like they've got a tool that does as good as you're going to get, and investing further in that's not going to provide a lot of benefit. I really think that the, the number one thing that's kind of changed the, the 
willingness from the Microsoft folks to, to revisit something like this is just the realization that there are a whole bunch of people out there that haven't started using VB.net at all for good reasons. Yes. You know? And when the Microsoft folks go out to talk to them, they don't have great answers for the guy who's you know running a big retailer and he's got you know a giant 200-form application that he doesn't see any way to convert over, right? Uh, or whether he's got you know a non-visual DLL that he makes heavy use of record sets. You know, how do I convert this thing over? There's not a great answer. No. Well, it's not as if suddenly when .NET was released, these VB6 apps didn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. They they do the job. Yeah. They still function well, unless you've got features in your app that you need that really you need .NET for. And I think. You know, we think got to think back to what was Microsoft thinking when they made this huge break in dot with dot net versus Visual Basic. They were thinking about the distributed environment, about really working with the internet within our apps. Mm. They were thinking about solving distribution problems, installation problems, the whole DLL hell thing. Mm-hmm. You know, those were the issues they were dealing with. If you weren't one of the people that were a victim of those problems, yeah, what do you care? <laughs> right. I also think it's easier for Microsoft to sit in a meeting and say, you know, eh, let's just let's just push them harder to to move over, you know, like they can do that, right? Sure, and you know, I'll I'll you know disclose here. I'm not embarrassed to say it. I I was of that same mindset. Yeah, back in 2000, 2001, when VB.net and, and the whole .NET framework was just starting to come out. You know, I kind of had that same attitude. Of I remember back when all the VB MVPs were really, you know, raising some concerns. I remember, about sure. Yeah. I wasn't. I wasn't in that camp. You know, I was just like, look, this is a better tool. It's a better technology. It's time to move on. Yeah, I'm a guy that grew up doing VB forever. That's how I started my career. I loved it, um, but I did feel like we'd hit a ceiling or a glass ceiling, I guess, where we couldn't go with the tool any further. Um, I think myself included, Microsoft included, kind of recognized, you know, we underestimated uh, as a community or as a company in Microsoft's case, just how painful that was going to be and just how uh, uh, how short-sighted maybe it was to not think that through as far as we should have to recognize all these apps weren't going to go away. And right. VB6 code wasn't going to port magically over to VB.net. Uh, and we needed to have a better interop story. I was with you. I was, uh, you know, here's this is new, you know. But the thing is, is that I, I understand how painful it is, and, and I was looking for a better solution, too. I did not think, and I still don't think, that making another version of VB6 that's kind of .NET-ish mm-hmm. was the answer. I don't, I think that would have just prolonged the pain. Yeah. I really think the, the one thing that may be worth considering would be another service pack release for VB6 to take care of or help ease some of the interop problems. Especially data types. If we could get the data types in VB6, that would be good. What a great idea. I shouldn't be so prescriptive. Maybe it's not a service pack. Maybe it's just some com interop pieces that ease it. But, you know, whatever it is, let's, let's be open to the idea of going back and changing the VB6 runtime or patching it to, to make some of those things a little bit easier. The, where the data set totally makes sense to have in VB6. I mean, it's, it's a data structure. There's no, you know, there isn't anything uh, magic about that. Uh, you, can, you could code a clone of the data set in com in C++ for VB6. You know, it wouldn't take long. Or it's even, XML, right? And I think this is even a solvable problem. You know, let me take a record set and just pass it through some layer that Microsoft provides that spits out a data set on the other side. So on VB.net, I can code against my data set and let me pass that data set back over to VB6 and have that record set, you know, have all the changes that were applied within the right. data set appear. You know, that is a solvable problem. It is a, da- a known data structure. It's a known, obviously, Microsoft knows the inner workings of both pieces of technology well enough that that mm. could be done. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, that the community would benefit from and that, in all honesty, I think Microsoft's open to looking at doing something like that. Yeah, good. Keep keep pushing them. That's a good solution. Yeah, I think I think the word that was in my mind was munger. <laughs> yes. Something right. that munges from one ty- data set type to the other. Yeah, and yeah. I'm not talking about, you know, the, the serialization system, the ADO net system, none of that. Just give us the, you know, the payloads, the the data sets, the the you know the the collections, yep, you know that kind of stuff. Yep. But I think you know this is not the first time we've had this pain either. I'm acutely aware, still sharply in my mind, of the VB3 to VB4 move. The great mm. 16-bit to 32-bit conversion was just as agonizing. Had just as many people saying, "I ain't going. You can't make me." Mm. 
<clears throat> you know, that same sort of attitude towards things. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I don't see a lot of VB3 developers out there anymore. So but, right. Microsoft's got a case that, you know, just stay quiet and sit on your hands and be patient with them. They'll come around. Yeah. And uh, I think the other difference, too, though, uh, I, you know, VB3, great tool, loved it. I don't think it had sort of the enterprise penetration that VB6 obviously got to, to where the pain was big enough and broad enough to kind of get right. the the chorus of complaints loud enough to actually have Microsoft hear it and uh, recognize it and, and do some things to address it. Mm. Um, I, I think a lot of people, myself included, tend to estra- underestimate just how much VB6 code there is floating out there. There's a lot of it. Well, it lot. still is. Yeah. And, you know, the nice thing, too, as we were working with the folks from Microsoft was I was somewhat apprehensive taking this to them and saying, hey, we can have a VB6 executable host of VB.net form. Right. I mean, that from a, a, a technology path perspective, doesn't, at least in my initial thought, was they may not like that idea. They may not like <laughs> people keep your VB6 <laughs> executable. I was shocked. They, they didn't care. They basically were like, look, if we can get them to use VB.net for what it does well and use VB6 for what it does well, you know, we don't care. Let's just give them what they need, give them what they want. Uh, and that was a great attitude, I thought, to have, uh, have them totally receptive to that kind of an architecture. You know, the, remember there was the whole uh, support is ending for VB6 uh, brouhaha when, it, you know, a lot of people, they announced that, uh, that main announcement to that effect and a lot of people got very upset. The, you know, but what people didn't realize is that it, it's not like all your VB6 apps are just going to stop working. Right. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's almost what people made it sound like. Yep. Oh, my God, it's going to stop working. Yep, yep. But uh, even in Vista, they've committed to shipping the VB6 runtime. Yep. Yep. So With, uh, a lot of people were shocked by that, I think, for the same reason that you just cited. I, I talked to several people that are like, what do you mean VB6 apps will run fine in Vista? I thought the product had ended life. Right. Um, but most people perceive it as a good thing. I think so. I do think, though, that end-of-lifing free support for VB6 was a good decision. And that's what it was. It was, if you're going to call for support, mm-hmm. now we're going to charge you. Yep. That's all. And if you actually, as a corporate customer, if you want to buy, you know, full, whatever, unlimited support, that's an option as well. Mm. Um, I think the main point here is that, yeah, the technology didn't stop working. Microsoft didn't stop helping customers fix problems with it. Right. They just stopped doing it for free. And and I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever called for tech support on VB6. I don't think I, <laughs> I don't think I have either. Well, now come on, that's not fair. We're all the people that people call for tech support on VB6. Well, that's but true. usually they just go to the internet and look things up. Well, that's, that's the truth today, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the uh, the Google powered developer is definitely pretty prevalent everywhere that we go. Oh, don't be saying the G word. <laughs> the the internet search power developer. There you go. Yeah. So <laughs> so what is I mean you know we come around to the talking about Visual Basic. Um, what do you perceive is going on with with Visual Basic? I know that book sales are down. VB book sales are down. Uh, seems like a lot of people are are um, jumping to C sharp. Mm-hmm. You know what do you think? Here's what we see with our customers. Is, you know is we do see. Certainly a meaningful number of our customers, when they make the conversion from VB6 to the .NET you know, technology stack, leaning more towards C-sharp um, for, for two reasons. One I think is valid, one isn't. The valid reason is large companies still, you know, today and probably for the, uh, forever, realistically, are going to be heterogeneous technology yeah. environments. That means they're doing a, a good bit of Java development as well as .NET. It's certainly easier to jump back and forth between C-sharp and Java. Sure. Uh, there's certainly more cross-technology uh, benefits there. I think also, a lot of VB6 programmers went to Java before .NET came out. Yep. Yep. Um, I think that's a reasonable reason to look at your, you know, your staff and say C Sharp is a better investment for us. I think that's kind of the minority reason. I think the yeah. other reason tends to be more, you know, C Sharp is viewed as the premier .NET language. Right. You know, right. All the old stories of all the demos and all the examples from Microsoft are in C Sharp. Right. Um, I think that is is a big part of it. Um, I think Microsoft's doing some things to address that, but I think it's a little bit like trying to you know lock the uh, the barn after the horse is already out a little bit. Um, yeah. Now, what there are some things about Visual Basic that I would that I'm not particularly fond of, but um, I'd rather still write in VB than C sharp, just because you know I came from that lineage. Yeah, you there know, are a I lot more the... things about C sharp that I don't like, <laughs> and things about VB I don't like. 
I had the uh, old comfortable pair of jeans experience. Uh, after spending about eight months doing nothing but C Sharp, I had to go back in and, and make some changes to a VB.NET component. Uh, and it did just feel faster, and I felt like I was getting more done in less time and mm. sort of all the typical VB6 stuff. I just mm. felt like I was fighting the tool less than I did with, with C Sharp yep. um, and that productivity boost. And then I went all the way back and worked in VB6 for a while, and yeah, I think there's still a little ways to go for VB.net to hit some of the productivity, uh, you know, benefits that uh, VB6 had. But it's it's definitely, I think, ahead of C Sharp. We were talking. Adam Kogan and I were talking. He was here for a week, a couple of weeks ago. We were working on some things after TechEd, and uh, we were talking about um, not just Visual Basic, but Visual Studio, like some of the designer stuff, especially data binding. Mm-hmm. Even though it's come so far, you know, they totally rewrote data binding from the ground up. Um, now there's no mystery about it. You know, every layer in there is exposed. And I almost feel like they walked us through the evolution of data binding for a reason. But then the reality kicks in. Now they just didn't do it right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know. you know, what is it about access that's so great and... And, yeah. you know, doing the similar experience, even in .NET 2.0, you know, still requires some uh, undiscoverable features. Let's put it that way. And this is where we get into, you know, now we're just talking about my opinion, no sort sure. of, you know, formal back. Same here. I, I'm a big believer in it. it's time for Microsoft to do a, a better and more effective job of differentiating C-sharp and VB. You know, and let's let's forget about language parity. It's okay if C-sharp can do some things that VB.net can't and right. vice versa. I'd much rather see, I always use the example of, uh, you know, Ruby on Rails. It's mm. taken off and people love it because it does a handful of things. It does them really well. Yep. If you try to color outside those lines, it falls apart in a hurry. Mm. But you hear these stories of people that spent, you know, weeks working on a website in Java that they got done in three days in, in Ruby on Rails. Yep. I think VB needs that sort of, you know, 10x I agree. improvement over C-sharp for specific use cases. You know, for the typical forms over data type application that most people build in VB6, I think VBNet, even if it imposes that ceiling again of, you know, Microsoft, believe it or not, has limited resources. They can't do everything. I'd rather see them take their VB resources and say, you know what, maybe we aren't going to support generics in VB but we are going to give you a great data binding, you know, designer experience that's going to get us probably, hopefully, beyond where Access and Fox Pro were, which I think right. is, they're still trying to get there. I mean, the re- right. I think that I see that as the evolution of software development, not just, uh, you know, not just for for Visual Basic programmers, but in general, you know, there's been there's been a trend, and there's certainly a, a large population of developers out there. Who that's what they want. They want Star Wars. They want to say, computer, write me a program. <laughs> yep. You know? Yep. With the least amount of steps as possible. The the more formal way of describing it would be the more domain specific language concepts. Yep. That getting into this is a language oriented on doing this thing well. Yep. After yeah. all, yeah. what else was Fox except something good at working with data? That's yeah. all it was good at. Yeah. But it was bloody good at it. Very yeah. good. And I, and I say was in a very rude way. <laughs> <laughs> I like making, you know, we, we interview, we hire a lot of people out of school. And, and to me, it's like, you know, VBNet should be the language for the MIS majors and C Sharp and C++ should be the language for the computer science majors. And, mm. you know, let's, let's be okay <laughs> making that break. You know, the people that are... Our developers spend half their day talking to business users and half their day writing code. That's not that unusual. Yeah, that's the sweet spot for VB. You know, you're not writing an operating right. system. You're not writing super right. complex computer science type projects. You're just solving business problems within a particular domain. I'd love to see VBNet just take a, a giant leap there. But we as a community need to recognize, and this is where people sometimes don't believe you. You know, Microsoft can't do that and retain language parity and all this other stuff. Yeah. I mean, you look at, I, know. I don't know, I don't know how they support it today, not only from a development, from a testing standpoint. You know, every new feature in the framework's got to be developed and tested in both C-sharp and, and VBNet and realistically C++ as well. 
you know, they're fighting a losing battle there. You know, they're, they're kind of fighting an unfair fight in some respects where the other technology stacks out there aren't, don't have that goofy constraint that, you know, they got to support multiple languages at the same functional parity level. Well, and it, it's not necessary. The fact that we're all working against the same runtime means I can go and use some features unique to C Sharp, build it into some kind of component that I can utilize just as well from VB.net. It's totally unnecessary to do this. Mm. Yep. And you know who got it right? And you may not believe this. Client I've been with for about 12 years, big AS400 shop. Um, and the the application development architecture on the AS400 is actually very similar to .NET. They have this concept of a, of a runtime that you can use multiple languages to build components within. And the, you know, the two dominant languages are C and COBOL. It's very analogous to C Sharp and VB. Sure. And there's nowhere near functional parity. You hit you know, ceilings in COBOL all the time. And you know what our customers do when they do that? The C++ guys write that, and the COBOL guys write the, the business logic. Well, that's what we did with uh, VB6 and C++, and it was working great. It was very – that was probably VB6, probably the most successful language ever. Yep. And I think, you know, you, we, it worked great in VB in VB6, C++ world, but there was – I mean, the barrier to entry to C++ was quite a bit higher than C Sharp. Sure. For someone to go in and, and extend what you ever you needed you couldn't do in VB6 and C++, that took a, a different level of skills than it would take to go into C Sharp and – you know, write a generic collection that I can consume from VBNet, even if I can't author that in VBNet. Agreed. But there, uh, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of third-party tools, though, and controls that were written yep. in C++ Absolutely. that you could just plug in. Absolutely. Yeah, you yeah. always needed a couple of ATL geeks in the back room right. yep. that you stuffed pizzas under the door for. <laughs> yep. you know. yep. They're ATL geeks, right? Don't let them outside. God. Yep. <laughs> They'll be the Chris Sells of this world. Exactly. Yeah. Dan Appleman's those yep. guys. <laughs> so I, I do think it's somewhat incumbent on us, though, as a community, to, to support Microsoft if they choose to do that. You know, we, we, we don't get the right to complain if we lose a couple things in VBNet, if we get a whole bunch of other stuff. And well, they got to do something absolutely. because, you know, as a language choice, you know, VBNet is a great language choice. But as you say, there, you know, there are these other reasons why, why people are choosing C Sharp to write their applications. Yep. And, uh, you know, wow, I could have had a VB. That's what I say. And it's funny, too, because <laughs> even the places where they where they do it a little bit, edit and continue is the example that always comes to mind. Yeah. That was originally a VB-only feature. Right. The first couple of betas, and then all of a sudden the C-Sharp team recognized, hey, everybody likes this. We need it, too. Right. And they put it in. And suddenly, that would have been a nice differentiator, right, to say edit and continue. That, that differentiates the two languages. Really, all that's left is my, you know, the yeah. my namespace on VB. And Heck, of course, even there, a couple of people have already created C sharp versions of it. Yeah, Javal Lowy created one called that. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, and that you know, that's where it's just those little breaks aren't enough. Uh, we need a we need a, a paradigm shift with VB. I think probably you know the um, the infrastructure code is all there in VBNet, and I love the fact that I can go down low if I want to. Um, now all they really need to do is add some goo on the top, don't you think? I mean, look at some of the very popular applications out there that are doing code generation. They're not just doing code generation. They're doing app generation. Yep. And look that right. Declare It, for example, yep. very high-tech stuff. You know, that's the, kind of, that's the kind of thing that I think more people ought to take a look at, especially, you know, Microsoft could go, doesn't have to go that extreme in the product, but... Geez, it, you know, they knew how to do it once. The thing, the thing here, Access has um, a bad rap because of Jet and because of the low-level stuff, but not because of the user interface. Mm -hmm. And don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, Microsoft. You've got some beautiful user interface stuff here. You could see, certainly recreate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I, I personally agree with you on sort of the declare it, you know, go out and... I, it's it's one of these things where I always come back to like you know source code control, right? And companies wouldn't go buy the better source code control products because mm -hmm. there was one that came in the box. Right. No matter how bad it was or constraining, it was virtually impossible to convince a company to go spend ten grand on a better source code control system because there was one in the box. Yeah. I think there's something analogous or similar here where. There may be some great app frameworks and runtimes out there, but if they're not in the box, they're you know they're going to have a limited penetration level. And mm -hmm. even if Microsoft puts one in the box that's not great, you know, SourceSafe for all its warts at least got everybody in the Visual Studio world checking code into something and checking it out of something and right. got us in that mindset. If you need something better, you could go buy it. 
I'd like something similar in the box around a framework, even if it's got some constraints, you know, .NET on Rails sort of thing. You get off the Rails, it falls apart, but you stay on the Rails, it goes well. Yeah. Um, put it in the box, and uh, uh, that would be a big differentiator. And by the way, make it VB6 only. And I don't mean that to, you know, constrain the C-sharp guys. Just, you know, don't spend the cycles making it work in both. Right. Yeah, you know, you make a really good case for the idea that all of the VB6 compatibility stuff should be implemented against VB.net. Don't worry about the rest. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, the toolkit we provided only works with VB. You know, it spits code. It only spits VB.net code. Um, and I think right. that's okay. Yeah, well, that's what that's what people need. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you brought up testing before. Uh, you know, there's a lot of... There's a lot of uh, application methodologies, development methodologies out there. From some from Agile, some from, you know, from from XP in particular. What uh, what do you think of you know functional testing, uh, regression testing? What what kinds of stuff are you doing? Are you doing test driven development, for example? Yeah, I mean we. Uh, so here's my general take on that. Love the concept. I mean, you sit down in a room with a whiteboard and not, no deadline and no budget, and it, it's just clearly the right way to build software. <laughs> I think you just nailed it. No deadline <laughs> yeah. and no budget. If so, you never needed to actually ship. Right, exactly. If I was writing my, my thesis for my PhD in computer science, it would be all based on test-driven development. Yeah. It's also a lot like <laughs> offshore. You know, I view those offshore development, you know, whatever it is, test-driven development, those are tools. They're not a solution. And you got to pick the right tool and you got to apply it to your need. Mm. And the concept of saying, okay, tomorrow we're going to become a test-driven development shop doesn't work any more than saying yeah. tomorrow we're going to offshore our development. Uh, tomorrow we're going to start a three-year plan for us to become a test-driven development shop. Great. Mm-hmm. You know, that can work. Um, but it's got to be recognized. It's not a, a, a silver bullet. It's not a magic fix. It's a nice evolution in the way we build software and you know, we're phasing it in at a couple of our clients where it makes sense and at other clients where it doesn't, we're not. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, you can still ship and write good software without TDD. Absolutely. And the converse is true as well. You can right. ship bad software even if you do TDD. Um, you know, the fact that I have 500 test cases that run every morning and I get a nice report of how they did or run constantly is great. But if those 500 test cases miss you know, the 200 use cases that define the success of my app, no one's going to care. Right, Users right. aren't going to be happy about that. Uh, and I think people do tend to underestimate the amount of time it adds to the development cycle to create the test cases. I mean, in my experience, it's roughly one-to-one. you got a day's worth of development to do. You have a day's worth of test case generation to do. Hmm. Uh, it tends to start at more like two-to-one. Mm-hmm. You know, as you're learning, you're getting your test environment up and running for the first, say, three to six months. You're spending twice as much time writing the test code case as you are writing the code. You can get it down to one to one. I haven't seen anyone get it down much below, you know, point eight to one, uh, and I don't think you will for for a while until we get some better tools to simplify the generation of test cases. Have you ever had uh, hired a uh, a TDD zealot in disguise? <laughs> yes. <laughs> who, who reared his ugly head or her ugly head at the most inappropriate time? Yeah, it never comes up in the interview. It always, it always comes up when the uh, the first bug count is higher than it should be, and then they then they point out that if we'd been doing TDD, we wouldn't have this problem. What a good boy am I. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a religious thing for a lot of people. You know, there's, there's definitely a lot of people out there who feel like if you're not doing TDD, then you're you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Uh, just like people used to think if you're not doing object-oriented programming, you're doing it wrong. Uh. I, I'm going to have to say, and I, uh, it's a shame that I do, but, you know, I'm, I, I'm a little glib sometimes, and I make some jokes and stuff. But that doesn't mean that I think TDD is a waste of time. Obviously, I think it's great. And I agree with John that, uh, you know, so don't – I don't want to see any blogs out there. You know, Carl Franklin makes fun of TDD. Right. He doesn't get it, you know. Yeah, I think what we're making fun of is people who think TDD is the end-all, be-all for right, you know, software projects come in on time and budget with delighted users. And there, there is yeah, no we built software solution. successfully before it. We're building software successfully after it. And failures are still going on all around us regardless of it. Yeah, yeah. but hope, you know, hopefully as an industry, we're getting a little bit better and a little yeah, bit better and so. a little bit better. You know, it's, I, uh, I think we are, but you know, it's a moving f- fence post, too. We are also upping the complexity of our apps faster than we're updating our methodologies. Yeah. So I think we're way better at building apps now, but we're also building way harder apps. 
uh, totally agree. And uh, it's funny. Uh, the one one of the interesting things, I guess, from from TechEd, and it's an extreme example, but you know, the show Twenty Four, great show, love it. Just got nominated for a whole bunch of uh, Emmys today. <laughs> but I think, in some levels, that that ups the complexity for us because. My my users now think that they should be able to open a port and have people send you know documents over and connect to their PDA and do all that kind of crazy stuff. Um, so the you know, the expectations of what our apps can do and Microsoft with their WPF demos, you know, I want a 3D catalog spinning around in a circle and I you know make a gesture with my mouse and it expands out. You know, people are starting to see that and expecting that in their applications and that yeah. does increase the complexity. So John, um, I like to ask all my guests at the end of the show. Uh, a surprise question, uh, but if you listen to the show, you probably expect it. Uh, is there anything that you've seen online lately or a tool or a toy or, you know, something outside your normal realm of experience that really impressed you that you really like? Yeah, you know, it's 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 not new. It's not shocking, but what was shocking was my reaction to it. Uh, I just over the weekend uh, converted a couple of my TVs over to Media Center Edition and uh, Xbox 360 with the extender software. Nice. Was totally skeptical that it would work. Still haven't made the full commitment. I'm still running my TiVos in parallel. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the the ability to record a show down in my home theater and then watch it from anywhere in the house that I want to without being constrained to watching it on the box where it was recorded, mm. uh, I just love it. And I, I completely pleasantly surprised at how seamless the uh, the Xbox 360 behaves as an extender. You know, HD TV doesn't matter, standard def, pause, rewind, fast forward, uh, does exactly what I want. Uh, really surprised me. Is this software that comes with the Xbox 360 or is this something that you have to download separately? It The Xbox comes loaded with the software. Um, on your Media Center PC, you do have to download an update to Media Center. Um, okay. so you go to your PC and go to xbox.com slash PC connect and it detects what you need and downloads it. Uh, from there, though, once you have your Media Center box updated, you just go over to your Xbox, you know, go to the menu, say find Media Center PCs, searches your network, finds one, connects. Uh, I had it up and running in 30 seconds. You know, Once I had Media Center configured, connecting the Xbox was, was seamless. Wow. Um, and you can connect up to five of them. So, you know, you've got five rooms in your TV or in your house. Uh, you can have five Xboxes all connected to one Media Center PC. Uh, theory, you could be watching TV on uh, all five of them at the same time, watching different recorded shows. That is so cool. <laughs> so cool. The only limitation I've run into with that technology is it works great if you want to watch stuff that was recorded by Media Center. Yep. But if you're getting your, your videos from other sources, yep. the Xbox player has a limitation on what formats it'll play. So quick tip I found over the weekend. There's a, a free product called Transcode 360. You put it on your Media Center PC, and let's say you have a home movie or something, you convert it to XVID or DivX. Right. You can now play that from your Xbox by using this add-in to have it do an on-the-fly conversion from Xbox or from XVID or DivX to WMV, which nice. the uh, Media Center or the Xbox can play. And you're saying you don't have to pre-process, you don't have to convert nope. in advance, it'll just do it on the fly. Does it on the fly? I it'll love cache. It. You can cache as many of them as you want. So if you watch the same movie over and over again, it'll cache that, so it doesn't have to do the on-the-fly conversion. Oh, that's sweet. Um, it's it's really fantastic because I got all my my you know kids' movies and stuff are all in an XVID format, and I was super disappointed. I actually blogged about it when I found out that the 360 would only play MPEG2 and WMV files. Right. Um, but uh, that was one of the reasons I was willing to switch over because I had been running Beyond TV, which is a, a third-party similar app mm-hmm. that could play everything and. Uh, I uh, was happy to switch over once I found that little add-in. Nice. Well, that's my breaking point. I've been holding back on an Xbox 360 because I wanted those other formats. Yep. Mine too. So you've converted me too. Yep. Just go search for it. It's free. I don't know who it's from. I don't know if it's an open source project or not, but I've been running it for a week. haven't had a single problem. Plug straight in. does exactly what I thought it would do. You the man. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Awesome. I've got an Xbox 360, but not in not not for that reason. So I'm going to hook okay. it up. Definitely. You're, you're actually using it for games. Huh? Yeah. I'm trying to, but I have twin it's hard for me. don't get much game time. It's hard for me to play games on the Xbox 360. The kind of games I end up playing are like table tennis, uh-huh. you know, because uh-huh. it's something that the whole, f- my, you know, I have girls. I have a four-year-old and a 10-year-old. We're not about to go, you know, wasting zombies with an assault rifle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's my one slight. But you'd like to. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have four-year-olds. I'd love to see some more, and I hope they're coming. You know, fewer kids' games on the Xbox. There's yeah. some good ones on the live that you can download and play, but uh, 
you know, no great big titles yet anyways that my four-year-olds can sit down and play. Nintendo's really good about alternate games. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Nintendo, that's what they're famous for. Yep. Yeah. So Transcode 360 is at our website called Runtime360.com. Awesome. Gotta love that. Gotta Richard love Campbell, it. the toy boy, in action. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's a show. John, thank you very much for joining us, and, no and uh, we're looking forward to that toolkit. Cool. Yeah, it'll be out later this month. Thank you for initiating that. Sure. And thanks again for being on the show. Cool. Thanks, guys. Richard, my friend, I'll see you next week. And you betcha. we'll see you, and we'll talk to you next week on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash dotnetrocks. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Toy Boy! Life is hard!